they're continuing to be played by Trump, thinking that somehow this Trumpian base is going to stand with them. They don't give a rat's patootie about Ted Cruz. They will dropkick him in a heartbeat when Donald Jr. is running for president of the United States. Marco Rubio, look out, baby. Ivanka's got something for you in Florida. You ain't winning that primary. They're making these calculations playing checkers with a guy who's playing three-dimensional chess. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Michael Steele is the former head of the Republican Party and former lieutenant governor of Maryland. He came out against Trump during the 2016 primary and endorsed Biden for president in 2020. He's currently a commentator on MSNBC and may run again for office someday. I enjoy talking to the Republicans who see through Trump. I think their perspective is valuable. I thought Michael and I had a very interesting conversation, and I hope you will listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with former RNC chair Michael Steele. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Michael, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, former lieutenant governor of Maryland. I've often found that people who've done a ton in their life introduce themselves like that rather than go into great detail, generally a sign of confidence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you you just don't want to get into the bio thing. It's like, okay, all right, go through the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's a lot. Michael, where'd you grow up? In Washington, D.C., in D.C., not the D.C. area. I'm actually a native Washingtonian. In, in Petworth. In Petworth, yes. For those of us who were born and raised there, we clarify that distinction very quickly because a lot of people, a lot of people who live in the suburbs, take credit for actually living in the city when they don't. Yes, I, I wanted to get that out there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when did you first conceive of a strong interest in politics? You know, it was kind of hard not to growing up in Washington, particularly at that time. I'm a product of the 1960s, you know, civil unrest, uh, religious unrest. I'm a Catholic, so a lot of what was going on in the Catholic Church, uh, the war, Vietnam, um, Watergate, all of that. You know, as as we like to used to joke when I was growing up, we you talk to people from around the country who come into the city and they talk about how they heard this on the national news and all that. I said, yeah, the national news is our local news. You know, it's just kind of <laughs> how we saw the world. I went to an all-boys high school, Archbishop Carroll High School, which was run by the Augustinians at the time. And, you know, 
went to school with a lot of the the sons of of prominent politicians in the region, not just from D.C., but from Maryland and Virginia. And, and certainly, you know, your social circles, you're going to run into these folks. And politics was always kind of there in the background for me. I didn't really get into it in terms of super involvement until much later, you know, when I was in college and, and certainly thereafter. But, you know, the high school years, it was just something that you, I would sort of see, talk to people about and not really absorb it. And I never really set out to be a politician. It was not my goal. I wanted to be a priest. So for me, uh, I was 180 degrees away from anything related to politics and, and, and politicians. But of course, you know, life has a way of turning on you. And you went to college locally at the very fine Johns Hopkins. What did you study there? Well, I went in to be uh, a doctor. My major was biology, and um, I wanted to be a, a physician priest. And and that was, I figured, you know, my life's calling. So I went in and um, started out as a bio major. And uh, after two years of incredible <laughs> pain and <laughs> <laughs> Many a science major has found that. Yeah, yeah. The dean of the university was like, you know what, dude? You need to think about something else because this is not working. I went into international relations, which I loved. And and that that actually kind of opened up the door to start thinking about a more active role in politics and in, in diplomacy and things like that. So so then I thought, all right, fine. And I, I'd be a church diplomat. I wanted to be, you know, I would when I graduated Hopkins, I would go into seminary and get myself on the diplomatic course inside the Vatican. Well, again, you know, life has a way of, of turning the tables on you and you wind up doing something else. But yeah, that was that was the plan. What was the next step in your education? Uh, law school, Georgetown Law School. When, when I left the seminary, I came back to Georgetown and um, got a law degree and settled down into a practice of law, corporate finance which was my specific area of interest along with international related deals, transactions. They weren't necessarily financial. Some of them were diplomatic. Others were political. But I realized that the law degree was a very utilitarian degree. So I could, I could really utilize it in a number of ways and not necessarily had to practice law in the traditional sense, which is not something that I really wanted to do. I never really wanted to be a partner in a law firm, even though eventually I wound up becoming a partner in a law firm. And again, I had no designs on running for office and and all of that, even though that's ultimately what happened. And and so you just, you, you never know. Uh, I think it's kind of my life story. It's like, you never know, you know, it just, and I, you know, I was kind of a, a Renaissance kid anyway. I mean, I liked a lot of different things studied a lot of different things, really was a utility player in, in many respects. I mean, I could just, you know, I could move in the world of finance, move in the world of politics, move in the world, you know, of, you know, science if I had to. So it was a real kind of interesting journey. When you are later the chairman of the RNC and stuff, you look at people through their demographics and their geography. And, and if you look at a young African-American from D.C., you wouldn't necessarily guess Republican Party. What was... No, you wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> what, 
took you into that party as you entered the political world? Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I, I, I tell people uh, even to this day, I say, yeah, you haven't you haven't lived until you've been a black Roman Catholic conservative Republican from Washington, D.C. Yes, I mean, that 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 is a demographic that, you know, you are by yourself. I think for me, the, the journey into politics in one sense began rather innocuously in that, you know, my mom is a Democrat. My parents were, were both Roosevelt Democrats. Uh, they still are very much so. But, you know, my mom especially was like, you know, don't be a Democrat because I'm a Democrat. Go out and figure it out for yourself. So 1976 was my first election where I could vote for president. And I turned 18 the October before that November election. So that whole first part of the year was kind of the the run up to the big event in November. And uh, so I went on and I learned about both parties. I, I studied our history and I studied the history of the parties. And I um, recognized that the Republican Party was the political home for African-Americans. And a lot of great Americans, including Dr. King and and Frederick Douglass and a whole host of people had an association with the party uh, at one time. It just made sense to me that why not play in your political home? Um, why not, you know, lock in here? And again, that was during a lot of the, you know, the transitions that were starting to happen in politics. There were a lot of social reactions that were kind of driving the nation's politics from uh, the abortion issue in the Roe versus Wade decision in 73 to certainly Nixon's effort to win the presidency by uh, embracing white nationalism and white segregationists in the South with his Southern strategy. The movement away from a segregationist history in the Democratic Party as Lyndon Johnson, who was himself a segregationist, embraced civil rights. Uh, but then you had the, you know, the sort of odd alliance where that civil rights agenda would not happen without the support of, of leading Republicans in the Senate, for example, who were still holding on to our tradition, our long tradition in, civil, in the civil rights space with the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments and, and so forth, uh, and now the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. So you had all of these things going on, man, that were just kind of, you know, for a young kid, it was, it was who, you know, clearly was looking at it not just strictly as a political exercise, but historically and 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 so forth. So there was a lot to take in. And, and I watched with a particular interest Ronald Reagan's uh, run for the presidency in 76, and was struck by a lot of the things that he was saying. As, as I like to joke, he sounded a lot like my mama, which actually made sense given that he was a Roosevelt Democrat himself um, before he became a Republican. It all kind of connected up for me in that moment. And I've never been a hard partisan. That was the other thing. I didn't grow up in that environment. I, you know, my political teeth were cut by by Democrats in the city who were literally the men who founded the political uh, culture and life and, and the city itself at that time. So Marion Barry, uh, John Ray, uh, David Clark, um, Joe Yeldell, who was a particular mentor for me, Walter Washington, the first mayor of, of Washington, 
first appointed and then elected, the first elected mayor of Washington. You have all of these pieces that kind of fill in the narrative for me. And it just seemed like a good place to be. And it kind of fit with my contrarian nature as well. <laughs> so, I get that sense. <laughs> that I, I don't go along to get along that well uh, with others. And it made sense for me and it fit. Do you feel like you are a little bit bilingual in ability to speak to both people of both parties? Yeah, that's actually, wow. That I hadn't looked at it that way, but that's That's a very good way to put it. Yeah. Wow. You got me something to think about there because I hadn't really looked at it that way. I'm pretty conversant in Democrat and Republican. I I joke with my buddy Tom Perez and a number of Democrats, some of whom are now even serving in the White House, about what happened in 2010. And and they they always say to me that they just marveled at what I was able to do and how I could do it so effectively to message against them. And I said, it's because I speak your language. (laughs) But I hadn't looked at it in terms of being bilingual that way. So I I appreciate that kind of uh, connection. We have fewer and fewer people who can speak across that widening divide. So I think it's important. Now, I appreciate that. It is sort of a uh, a way to communicate. And for me, communication is a big part because a lot of communication begins with listening. In my early years, I did a lot of listening. You know, I I remember having a conversation with Marion Barry, who taught me a lot about grassroots organizing, community organizing and grassroots politics as he would, you know, walk the streets of Ward 8 but then also get in his car and walk the streets in Ward 3. A lot of politicians didn't do that, particularly black politicians. They figured, you know, we're in a time of black power and all of that. And and Marion, and I'm going to use your term because I think it very much applies to him. He was bilingual in in that sense as well. He could talk to the poorest of the poor while he was breaking bread with the, the wealthiest of the rich. And I joke about it, I said, people never understood how Marion Barry could get caught smoking crack in a hotel with a prostitute, spend six months in jail, come out of jail, run for mayor, and win. And they're like, how the hell does that happen? And I said, because his people knew him and he knew them. And he connected with them in a real way. And in one sense, it is a little bit of a case study in how to interpret and understand the sort of mysterious nature of the relationship with Donald Trump and his base. I was thinking just that as you were talking about Barry, and it was making me think about, you know, my general concerns that Trump is not done. Oh, he's not done. No. And that he remains a very viable presidential candidate, even after everything that's happened. That's true, but I don't think he's going to run. His temperament won't allow him to run again. I say that having worked with him personally and, and been in rooms with him and up close with him, his his revenge is not necessarily going to be running again, because that's that's obvious and easy. His revenge is going to be creating little Trumpian Frankenstein monsters all around the country and having this continual wave where he he controls 
the amplitudes of those waves, you know? He controls where they land on the political shores. Donald Trump interprets power a lot differently than a traditional politician would. And it still boggles my mind that they haven't figured that out yet after all all this time. But you're right. He is not going away. He is going to be a player in in the game, if if you will. And 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 that very much sort of speaks to what these big big personalities in politics have been able to do. Whether it's a Huey Long or a Marion Barry, um, a Joe McCarthy, that kind of personality drives the politics as opposed to the politics driving the personality, which is what you're seeing with a lot of the Republican senators their political personality succumbs to the politics. So if the politics are hot, they retreat. If the politics are cold, then kind of raise their head up and they sort of bray like a horse in, the, in, in an open field when no one's around it, right? <laughs> You're like, why are you making all this noise and no one hears you, you know? You said Trump interprets power differently. Tell me more about what you mean there. So Trump, Trump sees power through personality. He doesn't see powers the power coming from the, through the instruments that you would normally use money, political influence, and sort of the tricks of the trade, if you will, to to show you got the power. Reagan did a little bit of this. He touched on it a little bit when it, during his time because of his personality and his ability to communicate. Trump is not an effective communicator in the terms of a Ronald Reagan. I mean, you listen to a speech and you go, really, that's the best you got? But the power isn't in the communication. The power is in the personality, the brashness. I'm going to kick your ass. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the toughest guy in the room. The wrestling. Right. There's nothing you can do to touch me. And, his, and the way he carries that out, and we've seen it. He will say and do stuff, and they're like, so what are you going to do about it? And nothing happens. There are no consequences. That's a superpower beyond what a traditional politician would be able to exhibit, because most politicians are afraid of saying or doing something that would get them bad press. For Donald Trump, bad press is good press. And and so it doesn't matter for him either way. You You, you can't... You can't hurt him by writing a negative story. And I think a lot of people, particularly in the press, misunderstood that. And so they would write about him and talk about him as if he were no different than Barack Obama or George Bush. And I kept saying, he is. He doesn't care. So what you have to do is figure out what he cares about. And that's his week. That's his kryptonite. And what he cares about and it's kind of obvious. Who do you think he cares about? Himself. Well, you saw the narratives talking about the size of his hands or talking about his skin tone or, or talking about how he projects that personal power, that personality power. That's when he would rear up and he would, he would get defensive. And you know who was very effective at that? Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi was excellent at it. The fact that, she, that the classic picture of Nancy Pelosi standing up in the in the cabinet room, standing up while all the men are sitting down, and including the president, and she's standing up, pointing her finger at him, looking down on him. That's a that's a hell of a power move. Or tearing up his speech. Oh, 
That's that's that gets to the personality. That that cuts to the personality. And you know why? Because that's the stuff he would do. That's what he would do. And so he doesn't expect anyone to do what he would do. And that's and you know, going back to what we were talking about before, you know, about being able to have that that dual conversation um, with Democrats and Republicans. One of the strategies that I employed in 2010 is I ran the campaigns the way the Democrats would run the campaign. They never expected to see a strategy that they were used employed against themselves, right? Politicians don't expect that. They don't expect to, use, to have their their strengths used to get against them as a weakness. And and when you do that, it throws them off their game. And 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 so when Nancy Pelosi would make those moves, tearing up his speech after the State of the Union standing over him and pointing her finger and talking down to him, that's a hell of a power move. And it just disrupts, it disrupts his, his orientation politically. And so what does he do? He lashes out. And notice, women are better at doing that to him than men. Because men want to play the game the way men always play the game. Women don't. <laughs> they never have. <laughs> How would you place yourself... Like you have a strong personality, you called yourself something like a contrarian. You have been willing to buck your party along the way. How do you think of your personality and it being an asset or not in politics? Wow! It and well, the orientation for me starts from the first part of my journey, and the first part of my journey was born out of a sense of vocation and service. I wanted to be a priest. So that animates everything about what I do. And while I am a political creature, I play in the political space and, you know, certainly being a part of one of the leading, if not the leading political institutions in the world, the Catholic Church, (laughs) you know, politics is always, it's in the room, it's always there. But it was never, it was never an animating thing for me. What animated my politics was the sense of service. I've always been about, don't give me the BS of why we can't do something. And I used to tell my staff, I said, the quickest way to get fired working with me is when you tell me something can't be done. Because I'm a little bit like Captain Kirk. I don't believe in the the no-win scenario, that there's always a way to survive it. There's always, yeah, the comet's coming. I got it. Uh-huh. But there's always a way to survive it. And we just need to figure it out. So don't sit here in this moment and tell me it can't be done. Uh, and so that sense has put me at odds with a lot of the leadership in my party, what, particularly when I was chairman. I was sitting these these meetings with the leadership and I would look at them. and I, You guys have no friggin clue what you're talking about. And they didn't because they weren't on the street. They were in the sort of political ivory towers in, of Washington or the safe enclaves of, you know, of a town hall where everybody was agreeing with them. They never really exposed themselves to the street, as I like to say. I my my political orientation was not not sitting in, you know in a college Republican meeting room or a young Republican event. I never did any of that. I was always on the street in some form, having doors slammed in my face because I was a Republican or because I was a black kid knocking on a white neighbor's door. Right. Um, so it's a very different orientation for me. And that sense of getting it done, finishing the service that you were committed to was very much a driver. And yeah, it put me at odds with a lot of people 
um, inside the party. But at the same time, it was freeing because I wasn't beholden to the strictures of a system that I saw really didn't work. And I've been proven right about that. <laughs> and it, it hasn't worked. Look at where we are. The party is worse off today than it was the day I took over as chairman in 2009, when we had lost the presidency, uh, presidential race in 08. We lost the House in 06. You know, I come in, we're hemorrhaging voters, we're hemorrhaging money, we're hemorrhaging a national narrative uh, that doesn't work. I remember Time Magazine covers that said, the party's dead, it's over. And he looked at the staff and they go, and now they hire the black man to come in and fix all <laughs> So, you know, and we did. We turned it around in 18 months. I raised $192 million in 18 months. I did it the hard way. Actually, I did it. You know how I did it? I did it by mimicking what Barack Obama did because Karl Rove and a lot of the money guys were calling up the big donors and saying, don't give to the RNC, right? Because they were trying to do their own things outside the party. Citizens United had come down, so everybody wanted to create this super PAC, so all the, do- all the big dollars were leaving. So I just said, okay, fine, that's cool. Again, I don't believe in a no-win scenario. So I said, what we'll do is what Obama did. We'll start for the first time raising small-dollar donors. And I went out and found a million people to write us a check. And we built that infrastructure uh, the hard way. Um, and I had to do it fast. So for me, the odds have always been stacked, but I've never let them beat me. Um, and I've tried to power through it. Uh, and I've tried to come out on the other end a little bit better, a little bit stronger, not for me personally, but for whatever you know cause or institution I happen to be working with. You had that shellacking year, 2010, but then you don't get reelected. Why not if you'd done so well? Because I did not go down well with a lot of people. And, and the reality of it is, you know, the narrative, look, here, get, just to give you a sense, you knew, you knew how this story was going to end because 30 days after I was on the job was the first time someone called for my being fired. 30 days. I didn't even figure out where the damn bathrooms were. And then people were like, oh, no, he's got to go. The dirty little secret, which a lot of people don't like to talk about, and there's still people who lie about that time. You know, like, oh, you know, he couldn't manage the money he spent. He put us into debt. It is such BS. It's frustrating on the one side, but you kind of get it on the other. But the reality of it was when I was asked to run for chairman, Five states uh, approached me in, uh, in 2008. And you were the lieutenant governor of Maryland at the time. I just finished up as lieutenant governor of Maryland. We were in the middle of the presidential campaign. John McCain is running. I very much supported John McCain and admired him tremendously and still do. And helped him on his campaign. And five states come to me and say, hey, we'd like you to run for chairman. And I said, I'd run if we lose the presidency because I didn't want to be chairman with the president sitting in the White House because I knew how that plays out. You you do what they tell you. And the reforms I thought the party needed to do, you know, they're not going to want to do that. And so unfortunately, McCain lost. And I then looked at it again. And what I found out when I was running and because running for chairman of the national party is like running for president. You have to go to all 50 states, all the territories. You have to sit down with people and talk to them and convince them to support you. 
And what these chairmen and national committee men and women were telling me at the time was, we want someone to come in and break up the cabal inside the RNC. We're tired of a handful of states getting all the money, all the resources. We want someone to come in and spread the wealth. You were a county chairman. You were a state chairman. We think you can help us do that. And I'm like, I'm down with that because as a state chairman, I saw the cabal firsthand. A select group of, of consultants and firms would get mega resources. And states like Maryland, when we needed the resources, we had to use their vendors. We had to use their firms that they'd already cut their little side deals and their contracts with. And I'm like, well, why can't I use a vendor here in Maryland? Why can't I? Why can't you help me build the infrastructure here in my state as opposed to making me bring somebody in from California who doesn't know jack about Maryland? doing politics here in my state. So that's where the state parties were. I came in and I break all that up and it ticked off a lot of people. First week in office, I canceled about $13 million worth of contracts. I got rid of the no bid contract process. So every every contract had to be put out for a bid and it had to be, uh, was transparent for all the members to see. They loved it until they didn't. Because what happened was Reince and others, I found this out unfortunately too late, um, was he Wisconsin party chair then? Wisconsin party chair, who was my general counsel. Everybody said, Rice is on your team. He's the guy. He's, you know, he really supports you. And I, I, I developed, I thought, was a good re- relationship with him. Um, and we had become really good friends. Um, we agreed a lot, obviously, on, on policy and things like that. We had the same, I thought, vision about the party. And unfortunately, that did not play out too well. It's just one of those lessons you learn very quickly uh, about who your friends are and politics will teach you that. But you know, you make these changes, man, and you try to you try to move the ball and it doesn't move. And that's because ultimately people kind of like the status quo. And you know, Rice went back as I found out later and talked to a lot of people in town and started spreading all this stuff about what was happening inside the RNC and since he was general counsel, he was in on all the meetings, so he knew what I was doing. Um, and so he it was depend on how he colored it and how he shaded it. And, you know, come election time, everybody's like, oh, you got to go. I'm like, what? But I just won all these elections. And I did what a chairman's supposed to do, win elections and raise money. But we have debt. Well, the party always has debt after an election. If it didn't have debt, then you guys would be mad at me for not spending the money. <laughs> right? We always do that. I didn't want the debt because I knew what they were. They were setting me up and I knew they were. And actually got on the record uh, from that budget meeting that we're all agreed that you want this, you want to take out these loans. I don't. So we're all, we all know that. Yes, yes, yes. We need to do this. And then of course they use it against me in the reelection, but that's fine. They say politics ain't beanbag, right? No, it ain't. It ain't. You got to come prepared to get hit. That's for sure. And if you're not prepared to get hit, then uh, don't play because you will get hit. I want to ask you about, I know it's ancient history now, but the 2016 Trump run, because, you know, you had talked about like all these Republicans who were ensconced in their safer worlds. Trump, it's not only personality that wins it for Trump, I think, in 2016. It's also some of the strategic moves he makes on immigration, on NAFTA and trade, taking positions that were very different than the Republicans before 
and I think make some connections to different parts of the electorate in different ways. I mean, how do you view that that run right now? I know you spoke out against him early. Trump and Trumpism, well, Trump could have been avoided. Trumpism was still beneath the surface. It just, I don't think it would have been, it wouldn't have been called Trumpism, obviously, but it, it was the remnants of the Tea Party movement, which I knew very well. And I thought we had managed that because I understood where they were coming from and what they what they were about. People like to equate the Tea Party to what's going on right now, all this, you know, this, but there, it's very different. In fact, the Tea Party of 2009 and 10 is very different from what it became in 2012, 14, for example. And I think it's important to understand that. So in 16, 15, 16, there were a number of us who were saying to the party, take him down now. You don't want this. You got to get that kind of phenomenon early. Right. And and the moment was the day he came down the escalator and said, all Mexicans are rapists and murderers. And why is that important? Because the party in 2012 and 13 had put out an autopsy in which they said declaratively that they weren't. And that, in fact, we need these voters in order to expand and grow our party. We have made the mistake in the past by ignoring the future of our party that that lies with both black and Hispanic voters. And so we're now gonna make a concerted effort to bring them into the party, give them a home, et cetera, et cetera. Donald Trump comes down and says, you mofos are murderers and rapists. And Reince did nothing. In fact, he made it worse. He goes up to New York to sit down with Trump and tries to negotiate over time. You remember that whole negotiation when Trump said he refuses to uh, play ball with the RNC? And, you know, you had the national chairman running around him like a little puppy dog trying to get him to play nice with the other Republicans on the stage. He goes on the national stage and he's taking them down one by one from Jeb Bush to Marco Rubio to Chris Christie, just knocking them down. And they did nothing. They sat there and let him eviscerate their leadership, their governors, their senators, their businessmen and women of great accomplishment, folks who were, you know, in the pantheon of conservatism folks who were wowing the the troops at CPAC. Remember, Trump was even welcomed at CPAC in 15 and 16. No one wanted to touch him. But the leadership, as we would see later on, played this really dangerous and stupid game of thinking that we could manage Donald Trump. We could, you know, block and tackle him out of position. And Trump knew that and played them for the suckers they were. And he continues to beat them as we see senators sitting in the second impeachment trial, 44 of whom, knowing that this effort is a constitutional one, particularly the so-called constitutional scholars like Ted Cruz. Yeah, write me a book on that nonsense. They're continuing to be played by Trump, thinking that somehow this Trumpian base is going to stand with them. They don't give a rat's patootie about Ted Cruz. They will dropkick him in a heartbeat when when Donald Jr. is running for president of the United States. Marco Rubio, 
look out, baby. Ivanka's got something for you in Florida. You ain't winning that primary. They're making these calculations playing checkers with a guy who's playing three-dimensional chess. We saw it in 15. We saw it over the last four years. And we see it now as he's sulking in Mar-a-Lago. He still knows that there are 44 Republicans in the Senate and 140 of them in the House who will do his stupid bidding. One of the biggest challenges for this country right now is to heal the Republican Party and turn it back away from. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's oh, not come a on. It is a mess right now. That's not a, ch- that's not a challenge for the country. It's a challenge for the party. Yeah. And guess what? You don't heal if you don't want to heal. When you're when you're diagnosed with cancer and you refuse treatment, what do you think the result's going to be? When you get sick from eating, you know, something uh, that's not good for you and you don't take any medicines to counteract the, the, you know. Are you predicting the death of the party? I'm not predicting the death of it, but it certainly can wind up in a coma. <laughs> That's just as bad. Were you surprised by the number of people who came out and voted for him in 2020? No, not at all. I've been saying for years, there's a whole lot of folks out here who like what Donald Trump is selling. A whole lot of folks. It didn't surprise me that his numbers grew. The question was whether Democrats could get their act enough to convince enough Americans to counteract that number. And I was just having this conversation yesterday with a leading Democrat who acknowledged to me that if if there had been a different nominee, a different ticket, Trump would have won. I think that's right. Almost any other nominee. Any other nominee, Donald Trump would have won this election, despite everything that he said and did on COVID or didn't do on COVID. It's uh, astonishing to contemplate. And and this one barely, barely won in the Electoral College. Thank you. 90,000 votes, 90,000 votes in selected states is the difference between the Democrats having control of the House, Senate and the White House and Donald Trump having control of the House, Senate and the White House. 90,000 votes. So. America, I mean, all this beating of the chest about, oh, my God, Trumpism, oh, my God. Baby, your neighbor is all up in that stuff. Your cousin is down with Trump. So don't sit there and act like you don't know that and, and now are somehow offended. We need to recognize as Americans the stench that we smell and where it's coming from. January 6th happened. Because a lot of Americans wanted it to happen. So, yeah, he incited it, but he knew people would show up and he knew exactly what was going to happen. And they played right along because he had tapped into that a long time ago. Understand this. Donald Trump's voters, that's 74 million or whatever the number happens to be, that hard 38 million, 40 million people out there who stand with him on regardless the ride or die supporters of Donald Trump. They were watching Donald Trump for 15, 14, 15 years before. They were his viewers. They came along with this man. He groomed them long before he decided to run for president. They watched him beat his breast and fire people on The Apprentice and hanging out with beautiful models and and young women with his pageants and all that stuff. So when the Access Hollywood tape comes up, people are like, uh, yeah, that's, I'm that's sure. Donald. That's Donald. Yeah. yeah, we get it. Yeah, actually, he sounds like my Uncle Bert. Last year, I talked to Reed Galen and I talked to Stuart Stevens 
and other folks at the Lincoln Project, which I know you joined in on. Yeah, um, yeah unfortunately, I'm no longer with them, but yeah. Uh, what, why are you not? And what, what was your experience there? Yeah, my experience was great. I, I was only there through the election. I left, I left the Lincoln Project um, the week after the election because my contract with MSNBC um, won't allow me to um, uh, be a paid analyst and, and be a part of a political entity. So I had to suspend my contract for the eight weeks that I was involved, eight or nine weeks I was involved with them because I really wanted to sort of finish the campaign and, and really drive home the message about country over party. And so I was finished at the end of that um, election cycle. But they're a great group of guys and uh, clearly had an impact on the election. Why are you sure that they had an impact? Because <laughs> Donald Trump lost. Well, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't prove anything, right? No, I mean, that, yeah, no, it actually does prove a lot. You look at, you can track the way they narrated this this election, uh, Democrats weren't even close. weren't even close, and they'll admit that. weren't even close to having the right angle of attack. Do you mean? Absolutely, drawing drawing the people to make the stark contrast about Trump versus fill in the blank: the Constitution, the culture, the politics. They had a profound impact in changing the dynamics on the ground, creating the kind of narratives. Look, the Lincoln Project was the only organization that Trump responded to in his tweets. It's the only one he went after consistently and, and the individual leaders of it uh, because he knew. He knew, going back to what I was saying before, you have to find the weak spot and go after it. They found the weak spot and they went after it, just like Nancy Pelosi did. That had an impact. It made a difference. It got him off his game a lot of times. Um, and when the press would play, you know, or, you know, TV shows and particularly, you know, a lot of Fox, you know, his turn against Fox was they were playing those commercials from Lincoln Project. And Lincoln Project was running ads on their network. And he was mad about that. Why are you, I know first thing, why are you running their ads? Well, because they paid for it. You know, we, FCC requires us to, <laughs> to run the ads if they pay for it. But yeah, it, it got to him. I mean, some of those folks have talked about running for office, about trying to, you know, take back the party in various ways. What do you think about the never Trump wing of the Republican Party and its prospects? That that remains to be seen. I, I don't know how that's going to play itself out. I don't know if, you know, a, a, a another party will emerge out of this one like the Republican Party emerged out of the Whigs um, back in 1853, 54. Um, I don't know that. Uh, we'll see how the battle lines are drawn. You know, I stand with uh, my buddy Adam Kinzinger, who who says, "Look, the the fight's on. Bring it. Let's do it." Um, and I'm all about it. I want to have that fight. I need to. I need to have uh, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and others justify to me their support for Donald Trump and how how anti constitutional, illiberal, and now insurrectionist that he is. How you still stand there and go, well, he's better than Joe Biden. Why can't they just convict him in the Senate? Because Trump won't let them. He's going to have somebody primary them. Okay, so you go down standing on the right side of history or you value holding that seat more than you value the oath you swore to the Constitution. 
Michael, we obviously have to make some changes because of what Trump showed us about the system. And I saw you had something with Donna Brazil just the other day about different kinds of reforms that we should tackle. And you, do you want to talk a little bit about what you think we should change systematically? In addition to, you know, the the changing of attitudes, uh, sort of reckoning with uh, the underbelly of our of our culture and our politics, we're also having to look at reforms that that deal with the institutions that that we allow to govern us, that are designed to to help support the the democratic ideas and principles and 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 so forth. And so Donna Brazil and I decided to just sort of put pen to paper and 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 think about what some of those reforms could look like, should look like, um, as we get ready for the next battleground around elections. So the president, of course, is talking about uh, a commission looking at the electoral process. I'm involved, for example, with uh, chairman of the U.S. Vote Foundation and the Overseas uh, Vote Foundation. So we, we look at how we help people get access to the ballot box and why that's important. We need to begin to look, uh, you know, much more comprehensively at what some of these ideas uh, are. The bottom line is there is a lot of work that we need to to start addressing uh, with how we dis- systematically disenfranchise voters. Uh, we have states right now, Georgia in particular, that on the heels of the election are now trying to change the law to make it harder for people in the Atlanta, black folks, let's put it out there, uh, to access the ballot box. It is a sad day for me that we see the party, my party in particular, straining its efforts to prevent people from accessing the ballot box as opposed to making it much more of an opportunity for them to do so. Yeah, you had things on your your list like automatic voter registration. And the guy who I talked to introduced me to you, John Koza, has this uh, reform for the Electoral College, the National Popular Vote Compact. It's rare in this moment for Republicans to advocate for undoing the Electoral College. What's your thoughts on, on that? I don't think uh, eliminating the Electoral College is the way to go. And I've been involved now with the National Popular Vote for a number of years. It, it is a way in which we, we keep the institutional structure of the Electoral College, but we actually wind up creating an opportunity for the direct election of the president of the United States by the citizens of this country. It says, all right, the states will enter into a compact in which they agree that the winner of the national popular vote, meaning the person who gets the most votes nationally across the board, will win the electoral votes for their states. So it's a compact very much like we have compacts with the lottery. States into into a lottery in which they say, all right, Maryland, Delaware, Virginia, whoever, you agree that if the winner is in Delaware, that People who play in Maryland, the money that they spend will pay out toward the winner in Delaware. And so it's the same idea. And what it does is it breaks up the cabal that right now we don't have an election 
uh, of the United States, we have an election of the battleground states, anywhere from eight to 12 states, depending on the cycle. Uh, those states get the, the resources. That's where the presidential candidates go. They go to where the, the margins in getting the electoral votes they need, meaning getting to 270, gives them the greatest chance of getting there. Uh, and so states like Maryland become a flyover state or they become a donor state. They drop in, grab cash and go. They don't campaign. They don't give the citizens of my state a reason to vote for them. It's a blue state. So the Democrats never show up, right, except to get cash. And the Republicans don't care. So this changes the landscape because now if I've got to build towards a national total, right, of 80 million voters, where am I going to get that? Well, I'm going to get that from all 50 states in the seven territories because I can't rely on just 12 states to deliver me 80 million votes. Because guess what? As a Republican, I know there are at least 5 million voters who don't even vote in the state of California, Republican and independent voters who don't vote because they say, why bother? All votes now count. All votes now count. And it makes, it makes I think, a big difference in how candidates will campaign and how citizens will respond to their participation in the process. The two parties have really sorted out ideologically in a lot of ways over the last 30 years or so. And now if you take a position on some of the hot button issues that are at odds with your party, it's very hard to to be a successful politician. You know, there's sort of litmus tests on both sides. You're not on the right side of some Republican litmus tests. What do you think about like the big tent versus sort of purity? The hell with purity, because you can't make something pure. It never is. And, and the reason is, is you then start to strip away people's own personal identity and what they bring into it. No one agrees 100% with anyone on everything. You just don't. It just doesn't happen like that. It's abortion. It's climate change. It's only a limited number of things that the parties will actually basically ostracize you around in certain states. In certain states, but even there, I've, I've been in the rooms enough to know that even on something on a hot issue like abortion, yeah, it you're, you're a hard ass until your daughter comes and says, Daddy, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And all of a sudden now you have a whole new reality. You're a hard ass on gay marriage until your son comes to you and says, Mama, we've seen that. We, we've seen it time and time again. Those litmus tests fall. Those purity tests are failed because we're human. What we are looking for is finding a space in which politically we can develop a consensus around these big issues and figure out how to work through them as a community, as opposed to, you've all got to believe what I believe. Now, let me give you a good case in point. For a generation or more, certainly since the 1980 campaign when Reagan introduced us to the moral majority in the political context, right? You had these evangelical Christians running around telling us how to live, who to love, how to behave, what not to do, et cetera, et cetera. Laying down the moral commandments of, of, of Christian virtue and attitudes and behavior and chastising us uh, relentlessly because of how we lived our lives. They were the arbiters of Christianity. They were the arbiters of, of Christian truth until Donald Trump comes along. And then Donald Trump comes along 
And you have a guy who's been married how many times who was cheating on his wife while she was delivering his son. They suddenly, Mr. Graham and others, they suddenly now go, well, that's different. And you have all these ministers praying over him and, and laying hands and saying, oh, he's, he's the new Moses. Really? Really? So, you know, give me your litmus test and let me shove it because it's not, it's not real. And they know it isn't real. What works is when the community comes together around ideas and, and values and principles and we have that debate amongst ourselves about how we're going to live in this community. Now, that, that is a true conservative view. It has a little bit of that libertarian orientation to it because original republicanism was a little bit libertarian as well. Um, and so the, the idea that I should be allowed to choose how to educate my child, I should be able to choose how to run my business but my daughter can't choose what to do with her body. And I say this as someone who's pro-life. That's not realistic. That's not realistic. And you know why it isn't realistic? Because for my Christian brothers and friends who, who think otherwise, God gave us free will. What commandment did you break today? I, I saw you coveting your neighbor's property, right? You like that TV he's got. You're jealous of the fact that he got that television, but you're going to go to church on Sunday and slap your thigh and, and praise God. But guess what? You just broke a commandment. So the reality of it is God knows that. He gave us free will and he knew, he knew what came with that free will. And that's why his teachings become important. The Beatitudes, blessed are they who fill in the blank, right? He understood that. And why we don't is still a mystery <laughs> because... Sometimes we, we are more than God when it comes to these things. It's pretty easy to imagine that Biden or Harris will face someone from the Trump wing in 2024. What advice would you have to the Democrat about how to make sure that, that they win again against that wing of your party? Make your case to the American people continuously. Put us on a new road on recovery away from COVID. Put us on a road of recovery towards the economy, you know, uh, moving the economy towards recovery in that, in that sense. Good politics is good policy. Yeah. It continued the conversation around unity. Uh, the country needs to hear that, despite um, some who don't want to hear it or try to live it. There are a lot of things that can be done. And I think will be done between now and 24. Uh, we don't know, I mean, how, how the worm will turn, as they say. But I think to the extent that the, the Democrats can listen to what the country's saying, the heartbeat of the country, if you will, and, and, and follow that pulse. Again, yes, 74, 75 million people voted for Donald Trump. But we know that all those people are not ride or die with Donald Trump. We know that. Um, it's statistically makes no sense otherwise. We know that that election, that the, a lot of those voters moved toward back towards Trump or stayed with Trump because they, they were afraid of what Democrats would do. Um, not just the socialism nonsense, but certainly, you know, the hot rhetoric that came from the left on policing and defunding the police. And America's looking and so, well, you defunded the police, then who's going to protect my neighborhood? No, I'm not voting for that. So, be clear about where you want to lead the country. Be clear uh, and push back against what you don't stand for. 
Don't let the Republicans, because we're very good at defining you. We can define the hell out of you. Um, and we will if given the opportunity. We've seen it. And I think that if they do that, uh, they, will, they will shore up the opportunity to expand their numbers in the House and the Senate, for example. Uh, and it puts the pressure on the Republicans to decide whether or not they want to be a competitive governing party or not. Or do they want to stay mired in the land of Trump and Trumpism um, talking amongst themselves. The country will move forward as it is designed to do. Um, the question is, will you move with it? Are you enjoying the political commentating? I see you on MSNBC all the time. Is that a good good place for you? Yeah, I, I enjoy it because I get to continue the conversation with folks. I love I love the conversation. I don't care if you agree or disagree with me. I just want to have the conversation. Let's talk. Let's talk it out. Let me share some ideas. Let me put something out here you may have not thought about. I'm listening to what people are saying. Um, and one of the things that was problematic or bothersome over the last four years is that we didn't get a chance to really talk about big policy. We talked about personality. We talked about the guy who was acting like a 10-year-old. I uh, was sitting in the in the Oval Office. It was pouting and tweeting and and picking fights and calling names. Um, and so you spend every day on air talking about that, and and it's 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 frustrating. It's such a relief right now not to just every day to read the news. Yes, you know, barring impeachment, to just not feel the Trump poison in the veins. Yeah, it is. I mean. I, I, so many people now, you know, I was like, I don't even think about him anymore. He's, he's not he's not consuming my day. That's a good thing. It's healthy for the country. We've got bigger things to be worried about. We, we still have people who are sick and dying from COVID. We still have economies that have not returned. Wall Street's fine, but Main Street isn't. And we need leaders in the House and Senate who are prepared to address that. You can't piecemeal it. The President of the United States is asking for $1.9 trillion to reset the course for the country economically and, and re with regards to it, its health. Republicans passed a $1.9 trillion tax cut <laughs> for Donald Trump. They didn't complain about that. They, they weren't worried about spending $1.9 trillion they couldn't pay for in tax cuts. We've not reaped that money back. And in four years, they spent $8 trillion in four years. And so now the new president is saying, dudes, I need, I need less than $2 trillion to set the course here to get us back on our feet. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we can't, no, we can't do that. that that's way too much money. We'll give you $600 billion. <laughs> You had to have a problem spending $1.9 trillion in tax cuts and you can't give money to, to families for relief? You can't help teachers and, and parents. So it's crazy. So maybe it's time for you to come over to, to the democratic party. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no. I, I don't hear a lot of warm stuff for the leadership in your side right now. That's fine. That's fine. I, I can, I can stay inside my tent and, and, and take care of business in there. And, and, you know, someone said, why are you still a Republican? I said, because I know it pisses people off on my side. The easiest thing to do is to leave. That's the easiest thing to do. They want you to go. They can they can pat themselves on the back and say, yeah, we got rid of another. No, I mean, actually, I really think that we need people like you in the Republican Party. We need a lot of people like you directing it back to sanity. 
Yeah, and I don't know if we'll be successful in that, but we're going to try. Um, and, and you know, there may come a moment where I go, you know what, I'm done. I, I don't know how the party comes back and look America in the eye after that vote in which they said, yeah, yeah, this isn't constitutional. I mean, when you have this then majority leader Mitch McConnell say, yeah, this the president did this. And then gum up the works so the trial doesn't start and then complain afterwards while well, you waited too late. Well, that's because you didn't call the Senate back so we can start the trial. You waited until the day of the inauguration. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Is there anybody that you see within the Republican ranks who might have the potential to set the party on a new course that has the personality to win and the, I don't know, the positions to find the front? Liz Cheney. She took a real gamble to her great honor, I think. She should be the next Republican Speaker of the House. If we ever get back the House, she should be the Speaker of the House, period. And the chances of that seem extremely low with the way they've been voting lately. Unless somehow we get past this infatuation with Trump and realize that that was... And that's going to take big defeats, huh? It's going to take big defeats. I don't see it happening in the short term. So, you know, we look to individuals like Mitt Romney and Liz Cheney, Senate and House, to be the stalking horse horses for the future of the party, um, to sort of make with some degree of clarity, you know, what we are, what we stand for, et cetera. But, yeah, it's going to be hard. I've always admired her. I've liked her. I've known the family through political circles. Um, her dad was... Um, you know, a good supporter when I ran for the U.S. Senate and, you know, I had the chance to work with the administration back in the day. And she's been a good public servant. And and her politics, yeah, everybody can debate her politics. That's fine. And that's, that's how it should be, you know. But um, her leadership, you can't question that. Um, and, and I think that she, she demonstrated very clearly that she's someone that the future of the party should look to, not not. Donald Jr. or Kimberly Guilfoyle, or certainly not Jim Jordan and, and Josh Hawley. So. Michael, is there a question I didn't ask that you'd like to answer? No, you covered the ground, brother. This is, this is rather cathartic. I appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> well, I enjoyed when you revved up because <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I, feel the, I feel the passion around Trump and some other matters that are just huge and, and consequential. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I, I, I try not to, to get on that soapbox too often. <laughs> uh, you like I, it. I, I can be a little bit in your face sometimes, and it's because I care about it. it, it you know, I, I've been through the wars for this party and made sacrifices willingly because I believed in our ideals that, you know, every citizen in this country is protected by the Constitution is valued uh, by the Constitution and is protected by its tenets and the laws that flow from it. And we should be the party that stands that up every day. And we didn't uh, during the time of Trump. Is, is there a next thing for you? We'll see. Uh, you know, I want to take a look at uh, elective office again. Uh, we've got an open governor's seat here in Maryland in 2022. And, and I want to take a look at that. You know, maybe the U.S. Senate a couple of years after that. I don't know, but I look at it this way. I'm not done yet. At least I think God has got a little bit more 
in the fuel tank for me. And so we'll see what, how that plays out. Like I said, I didn't think I'd be here. So Lord knows where I'm going to end up next. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, we all feel that way. Yeah, we do. I think so. I think so. Well, uh, an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, I think we're good. I think we're good. I appreciate the conversation very much. man. I, I do too. That was Michael Steele. He's at Michael Steele on Twitter. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.